Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. All right. This is Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? Now, here's the outline for this Be a Good Human campaign that we've been going through. We're talking about justice for three weeks. We've just completed three weeks. Now we're going to talk about mercy for three weeks. Then we're going to finish with humility for three weeks. That makes nine weeks. We're in week number four. We're jumping into mercy. The first week we said, God defines what is good because God is good and God created good things. Every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights. And then we said, justice needs truth. If there is no absolute truth, there is no absolute justice. And then last week we talked about what does it mean to act justly. We talked about being an advocate for people. We, talking, we talked about standing for people who can't stand for themselves. Now this week we're jumping into mercy. Mercy. Uh, last week I mentioned um, Cain. Do you remember that? Genesis chapter 4. And we talked about how Cain, the first brother, murdered Abel, the second brother. And God talks to him. And God says, because you've done this, here's the punishment. This is justice. You now have to leave your family. You have to leave your home. You have to leave everything you've ever known and go into wandering. And it turns out that Cain and his descendants lived in a place called Nod, which meant wandering. And then the second part of that punishment was Cain was a farmer, right? He grew vegetation out of the ground, fruits and vegetables. God said, you're going to lose that green thumb. You're no longer going to be able to grow produce from the ground. You're not going to be able to make the ground work for you. That was the punishment for Cain. Cain says, God, have mercy on me. This punishment is too much for me to bear. Somebody's going to chase me down. Somebody's going to have vengeance for Abel's sake and take my life. How am I supposed to do this, God? You're asking me to leave everything I've ever known. And God says, I'm going to put my mark on you so that anybody who sees the mark will not take vengeance on your life because the mark of God is on you. That's mercy. Did Cain deserve it? Did he earn it? Was he worth it? We're going to talk about mercy. God shows mercy in the midst of judgment. Mercy and justice. I love how we just spent three weeks on justice. Now we're jumping into mercy. But how do justice and mercy correlate? How do they work together? Because so often we see them as opposites, don't we? I want to talk about that. Um, But I told you the sermon today was on one word. One word, right? And I'm going to keep that promise. And that one word is right here. Mercy. Now, I want to tell you something that maybe you thought about, maybe you haven't thought about. In the original Hebrew Bible, that's not the word that is there. Because the word mercy is an English word, right? Obviously. And the Bible that you hold in your hands, unless you can read Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic, is a translation, a version, a copy of the original Bible, which was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. So the term mercy here is actually a Hebrew word, and that Hebrew word is this word. Now, Steve told me this word. He said, hesed. That's what he said. He said, hesed. 
Um, sometimes I kind of take the approach that if my jokes are bad enough, they, they kind of, there's kind of a bell curve there. You know, if they're bad enough, they're almost good, right? Because people tend to respond if the jokes are really bad. So if you get to lunch today, and the question is, you know, what did the pastor have to say this morning? You can just say, he said, has said. That's what he said, okay? And you'll, look, you're not going to forget that now, right? Who hates puns? Like you just hear a pun and you're just like, oh, yeah. Has said. Um, this is the term mercy in Micah 6.8. It's the Hebrew word has said. Now, when you're doing a study on one word, when you're doing a word study in the Bible, you can look at it a number of different ways. And this is kind of a fun way to learn the Bible. This is an approach that I use in a lot of the sermons that I get to preach. You find a word that really sticks out. Maybe it's repeated, maybe it's used, maybe it's in an instance where there's a really, you know, you know, tight point in the plot and the conversation. What does the word mean? So you can look at it a bunch of different ways. You can ask the question, how many times is this word used in the Bible? Now, let me tell you this. How do you ever figure something out like that? Okay, well, there's some really easy tools. A lot of pastors use a software called Logos, Bible software, uh, which is a paid feature. You probably can't get easy access to it. It's kind of expensive. I like to use BibleHub.com. You can write that down. Really easy. You go to BibleHub.com. It's got a search bar. You can put that word right in there. It'll tell you all about this word tell you its origin, tell you how many times it's used. We're going to talk about those things. But when you read the newsletter, and I know that you all read the newsletter Thursday at 12.01 p.m. when it comes out, right? But when you read the newsletter and it says, click here to read the upcoming passage for the Sunday that's coming up, when you click that, it takes you to BibleHub.com. It's right there. So that's, that's a really great way to do some of these word studies, and it's the one I like to use. It's absolutely free, BibleHub.com. Uh, I don't get paid to say that, but maybe I should. <laughs> How many times is this word used? 248 times in the Old Testament. Because there aren't many Hebrew words in the New Testament, so the Hebrew word has said is used 248, some people say 250 times in the Old Testament. You can ask a question like, who uses it the most? King David uses it the most. Where do you find this word the most? In the Psalms which King David wrote. A lot of the songs in the Psalms were written by King David, which is where his said is used the most. Where is it used first? It's used first in Genesis 19, verse 19, where God sends angels to rescue Lot and his family from Sodom and Gomorrah before he pours out destruction. You remember the story? And Lot, after being saved, he says, you have shown great kindness. That's the Hebrew word, his said. That's what he said. In saving my life. And then you can look at where is it used last. So you go to the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 9, where God says to Zechariah, judge rightly, show kindness and mercy. The Hebrew word hesed. And I love how it says, judge rightly, and then show mercy, because we're studying Micah 6.8, which says, act justly, love mercy. We see it throughout the Old Testament. But how did justice, how did mercy correlate? Uh, you can look at synonyms. It shows you different synonyms. Biblehub.com. Steadfast love, mercy, kindness, goodness. You can look at antonyms. Shame, repro reproach, disgrace. You can say, what's the cultural relevance of this word? What does this Hebrew word, his said, mean to the Hebrew people in their language, in their culture, in their religion? 
in Hebrew culture, his said in its simplest form was to bow the head. Everybody just bow your head in covenant relationship. It's the very opposite of looking at somebody down the nose in judgment. His said is to bow your head to somebody in a faithful, loving relationship rather than looking down the nose at somebody in judgment. Okay? Maybe a picture that'll help you to remember it as well. Um, it's a faithful partnership. It's, it's indicative of God's mercy towards his chosen people because of his covenant promises that he made to them. It's the opposite of God looking down his nose at his people in judgment. What's a good definition of the Hebrew word hesed? That's where we've got some work to do. Because there are no really good, accurate, 100% equivalents in the English language or in the Greek language for the Hebrew word hesed. Now, I don't know about you, but all of that information right there is great and it's helpful, and I use it a lot of times in sermon prep. But reading it academically like that doesn't really help me in the life change department. I don't know about you, it doesn't really help me with the application. I need to see it working. I need to see it in a story. I need to see it in practice. I need to see somebody exemplify it and then say, that's his said. That's what mercy looks like. So that's what I want to do. So instead of reading through all 250 references to this word and what those stories have to say, I just want to look at some of the key stories that stuck out where this word is prominent in the story. Does that sound good? All right. Let's look at some stories. Um, do you remember when the Hebrew people came out of Egypt and they wandered in the wilderness? God was pretty faithful to them, wasn't he? I mean, he sent them the 10 plagues in Egypt so that Pharaoh would finally say, get your people out of here. He gave them a green light at the Red Sea. Stephen Furtick just preached on that a few weeks ago at Elevation Church. I love that title, a green light at the Red Sea. And then God was faithful to them as a pillar of fire by day and then, no, it was fire by night so that they could see it, and then cloud by day leading them through the wilderness. He gave them meat he gave them manna to eat. He gave them water from the rock. God was faithful to them time and time and time again. Do you remember how they repaid God? Do you remember all the murmuring, the complaining? Do you remember all the talk about, do you remember how good Egypt was? The melons, the leeks, let's just go back there. And they so quickly forgot the slavery and the oppression that God had saved them from. So you get to Exodus chapter 19. God calls Moses up on Mount Sinai to meet with him in the cloud. Then you have 12 chapters of this conversation that goes back and forth between Moses and God. God wasn't just giving the Ten Commandments. He's not just giving him rules 1 through 10. He was giving the best practices for living, the rules for life how to treat others, paying back what you took, freedom and rights for slaves, justice for those who are socially marginalized, worship, celebration, the tabernacle, the promised land. This is what God was talking to Moses about in the cloud. Moses was up there for one stint, 40 days and 40 nights. How crazy is that on top of the mountain? Now, 
God gives him two stone tablets, and it says they're written with the finger of God. How incredible would that be to see? While Moses is up there, God's people gave up on Moses. They bring all their gold and jewelry together, they melt it down, and they make this calf. And they start to worship this golden calf as the God who brought them out of Egypt. And they forget God, forget Moses. Moses has been up there 40 days and 40 nights, he's gone. They forget God. Moses comes down from the mountain. He smashes the tablets that have been written on with the finger of God. Now, Moses is on his second trip back up the mountain to have another conversation with God with another set of stone tablets to receive commandments a second time. Listen to what God says. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. Anytime you see Lord in all capitals like this, this is the Tetragrammaton. It's Yahweh. It's referring to the Trinity God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Hesed, the Hebrew word hesed. Keeping Steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and their children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God of mercy, grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then at the bottom, we see that he will be no, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. How, how do justice and mercy fit together? That's, that's the tension as we talk about this. But this, this is mercy right here, isn't it? Because you think about how much God had already done for his chosen people. And how it, it only took a month of Moses being up on the top of the mountain, 40 days and nights, for them to turn their back on Moses, turn their back on God, and create their own false image to attribute all of these good things to. That's mercy. It's, it's like a parent who gives and gives and gives, and all the parents out there know exactly what I'm talking about, but all their toddler sees is what they want in the moment. And the parent knows what's best for the child, but the the child just wants their way again and again and again. Except for the fact that there are a few million Hebrew children here. And God has been working miraculous signs and wonders before them. Still they turn to a false idol. But God shows them mercy. Mercy time and time again. Just, just think about this verse 7 down here. who will by no means clear the guilty. Think about this tension between mercy and justice. We've just talked about justice. How do mercy and justice correlate? How do they fit together? In Exodus chapter 32, Moses and God go back and forth about that exact conversation, justice and mercy, just the previous chapter. God says, these people will be consumed with fire if I try and approach them, if I try and move with them, if I try and be their God. That's just. But Moses, 
intercedes for the people like a type of Christ. And he speaks on the people's behalf and, and he calls out for God's attribute of mercy. God responds with mercy. How can you have justice and mercy? Because the two seem to be at odds, don't they? Like, if I give you, if, if I give you mercy, then I don't get justice. But if, if you take justice, then I don't get mercy. How do the two work together? How can God be both just and merciful at the same time? Acting justly, loving mercy. Let's look at another story. The story of Jonah. Um, two years ago, on this Sunday, I preached the book of Jonah from this stage. Can you believe that? Two years ago. And I had, do you remember the video that played behind the scripture up there? I had like the storm and there was lightning and then there was water moving. Everybody got motion sick and we were all vomiting on the floor because that's exactly what I wanted to have happen, you know. When we were talking through the book of Jonah, that didn't really happen. But we did show the video and I did preach on Jonah. And I said this, Jonah was a jerk with a secret. Do you remember that? I tried to play it up like Jonah had this big secret through the whole book and you don't find out until chapter four what the secret was. Jonah was a jerk with a secret and his secret was what made him run away from God. You remember Jonah boarded a ship for Tarshish in the opposite direction from Nineveh? What happened? God sent the storm. God sent the great fish. God protected Jonah while he was in the belly of the whale for three nights and then he spat up on the beach and then Jonah finally goes to Nineveh that wicked city, to preach judgment and destruction and the consuming fire that was going to fall from heaven and consume the city. And I asked the question, why would Jonah not want to go do that? Because the Ninevites, who were Assyrians, were enemies of Israel. Wouldn't Jonah want to be the guy to carry that devastating news to those people? Why would he run in the opposite direction? Wouldn't you want to stand over your enemy while they're being punished, while they're being destroyed, and say, ha, ha? Here's his secret. Jonah chapter 4 and verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly that God would not consume the city of Nineveh in fire because all of the Ninevites, from the king to the peasant, put themselves in sackcloth and ashes and repented of their sin and cried out for God in mercy. So God relented from his anger and didn't send the consuming fire against Nineveh. Instead, he shows them mercy. He shows them grace. And that displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is his secret. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. That's why he ran away. Because, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. His said, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. His said, and relenting from disaster. Why did Jonah run? What was the secret that forced him to run? He knew that if those Ninevites would repent, if they would turn from their sin, God would show them mercy. And God wouldn't consume their city with fire. And Jonah 
did not like that. He's ticked off because God showed mercy to those undeserving sinners. He knew it was going to happen before he ever even left for Nineveh. God was willing to show mercy to the Assyrians. Jonah wanted destruction with every ounce of his being. God loved them. Jonah hated them. Jonah knew that condemnation and judgment are not God's heart, so if the Ninevites repent, it would never end in destruction. And that didn't fit with Jonah's understanding of justice. God's mercy didn't work for Jonah. You know, mercy is hard. Mercy will cost you something every time. Uh, Pastor Andy Stanley at North Point down in Atlanta, Georgia, he says that kindness is loaning somebody else your strength. You know, it takes a strong person to show mercy to somebody who doesn't deserve. It takes a lot to show mercy because if I show mercy then I don't get the form of justice that we so often associate with what justice looks like and serving justice and seeing people brought to justice. If I show mercy, then I lose something. If I extend mercy, I'm expending my strength. If you hurt me and I show you mercy, I don't get to hurt you back. Mercy means to be offended, but choosing not to hold offense. Mercy means to be wronged, but answering rightly instead. Mercy's hard. Here's another story. Um, David, he's a well-known guy in the Old Testament, right? King David. He's anointed king. He defeats Goliath. He's got a band of mighty men. He plays the harp for King Saul. He writes all of these songs. He watches his sheep. And then once Saul dies, he takes over the kingdom. He's a man after God's own heart. But he wasn't perfect. Made a lot of mistakes. Here's one of the biggest ones. There, there was a time when David should have been at battle with his army. But he chose to stay at home in the palace for whatever reason. That was wrong. And while at home, he's looking through the window of his palace, and there's a woman bathing on the roof just a little ways away within eyesight. And guys and girls, the, the first look isn't what gets you in trouble. It's the second look. It's the third look. It's the fourth look. And King David said, I want that woman. Go and get her. He slept with her. Long story short, she gets pregnant. But she's a married woman to a man who's fighting in David's army, the battle that David should have been at. So David concocts this plan. He says, well, I'm going to invite this guy home. I'm going to give him a medal for bravery. And I'm going to say, go celebrate with your wife. But this man is so faithful to his comrades. He says, you know what? It's not right that I should enjoy the pleasures of home when my buddies are out fighting this battle for our country. So he sits at the king's steps until the king sends him back to battle. David's plan's foiled, so he comes up with another plan. He calls this guy's commanding officer, or sends message. I guess they didn't have iPhones back then. And he says, you put this guy in the front of the battle, on the front lines, in the heat of the battle. Make sure you advance into the battle, retreat away from him, let him die in battle. King's command. Signs it, probably stamped his ring. He's getting in real deep, isn't he? That's exactly what happens. This guy is murdered. King David takes this woman Bathsheba to be his wife. 
evil, murder, affair, adultery. Well, um, the prophet Nathan shows up. And he comes into King David's presence. And he says, I've got a story for you. There was a rich man who had flocks and herds of sheep. And then just a little ways away, there was a poor man who had one little ewe lamb. The poor man loved this little lamb like his own child, like his own daughter. And he held this little lamb. He let it eat off the table with the family, drink from his own cup. It was like his own child. It's like part of the family. Turns out this rich man had a guest coming to stay, and he needed to serve him supper. So he looked out over his flocks and herds and thought, I don't want to sacrifice one of my sheep for this meal. Then he looked across the street and he sees this poor man with his little sheep. He says, go get that sheep, kill it, and prepare it for the meal. And that's what happened. King David is just enraged. He stands up and he starts to yell, this man needs to die for his wickedness, for this injustice. And he says, this man needs to pay back the poor man fourfold. Who is this guy? Show me who he is. And Nathan says, thou art the man. You're the guy. Take a look in the mirror. And David in that moment, he's just broken. He realizes that Nathan knows all about this little conspiracy that David's tried to keep on the down low and hide from everyone. And David's just broken. He's just totally and utterly broken. And he writes this in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, said, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's a beautiful psalm, chapter 51, if you want to read it. But we, we all love justice, don't we? And we all think we're acting in justice, as we talked about last week. We all think we're acting for justice, not injustice. We love justice. We love seeing justice served. When that family has their van stolen, all the car seats are thrown into the ditch, and then the van's recovered, we, we want to see justice served for that family. We love justice. We preach justice until we're the ones who have committed the injustice. And then we're the ones who want mercy. We love justice until we're the criminal. And then we want mercy. Haven't you found that to be true? You bump my car you know, you better pay to have it repaired. But if I bump your car, I'm hoping that you say, hey, you know, it's all right. We want justice until we need mercy. That's where King David's at. Then David wrote this, and we sang it this morning, Psalm chapter 23 and verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness, mercy, has said. How could David say this? I'm really not sure if he wrote it before or after this situation, but there's always been sin in David's heart. How could he say that forever, all my life, for the rest of days, goodness and mercy shall follow me? All the days of my life. How can he say that? 
David knew that mercy would follow him because God's mercy isn't contingent on whether or not we're deserving, whether or not we've performed to a certain level, whether or not we're worthy. God's mercy is based in God. God's mercy is who God is. Mercy is an attribute. If you remove mercy from God, he ceases to be God. God is merciful. And, and this term, follow, it's actually probably more accurately translated from Hebrew, pursue. God pursues us in mercy and goodness. Your goodness is running after me. You know, we sing that in that song. That's what this is. God's goodness, God's mercy chases after us, pursues us all the days of our lives. Not because of our performance, but because of who God is. Not because we're deserving, but because God is merciful, steadfast, abounding in love and kindness towards us. Last story from King David. Uh, This is one of my wife's favorites, and I love this one. King Saul was the wrongful first king of Israel. He was the people's choice. He was tall, dark, and handsome. He started out good. He turned bad. God's first choice, the rightful first king, was David. David was anointed. The youngest one of Jesse's sons. Remember, he wasn't even invited to the the party. He was out in the field watching the sheep so the older brothers could strut their stuff in front of prophet Samuel. Um, King Saul had a son, Jonathan. Jonathan is David's best friend. Scripture says that their hearts are knit together. That's friendship. Jonathan risked his life for David. Jonathan saved David's life. Well, it turns out that Saul and Jonathan both died in battle and David took over as king. God's rightful first choice as king. And David does something pretty noble after Saul and Jonathan have deceased, have been removed from the throne. 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 1. David says, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? His said, mercy, steadfast love. For Jonathan's sake, his best friend who has died. David wanted to show his said mercy to someone from Saul's family. Why did he want to do that? Because he loved his best friend, Jonathan. He loved Jonathan. For whom do we show mercy? Can someone somehow earn our mercy or be worthy of our mercy? Did Cain deserve mercy? Did King David deserve mercy? Did Nineveh deserve mercy? Or do we show mercy as a response to the mercy that God has shown us? Do we love because he first loved us? That sounds biblical, doesn't it? Was David showing mercy because Jonathan had shown mercy to him? Chapter 9, verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called to him, to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. 
The king said to him, where is he? Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. I don't know if that's how you say Machir, Machir. I'm not sure. You know what Lodibar means? It means no pasture, no flock, no herds, no produce, nothing to speak well of, nothing to boast about, nothing to offer, nothing of worth, nothing of value to the king. 2 Samuel 9.5 The king David sent and brought him from the house of Mature, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, that's his name, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. You shall eat at my table always. We don't have time to go through the whole life of David, but Saul was not kind to David. On two occasions, Saul tried to pin David to the wall with his spear. While David was playing music to soothe the evil spirit that come upon the king. Saul pursued David and his mighty men. Saul tried to kill David on multiple occasions. David had an opportunity to take Saul's life while Saul is using the bathroom in a cave and Dave's hiding behind a rock and David cuts off the corner of his garment to show him to say, I could have taken your life, but I didn't. Saul hated David. Now David is showing kindness to a grandson of Saul for the sake of his best friend, Jonathan. Mercy. Has said, This is kind of like the prodigal son returning, isn't it? Just, just make me one of your servants, and instead the father throws a party. Kill the fatted calf. Get, get the robe, get the ring. You're going to eat at my table. You're going to eat at the king's table. I love that picture. Look at verse 8. Mephibosheth paid homage to King David and said, What is your servant? Who am I? that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Doesn't that just break your heart? You have this young guy who's crippled in his feet, refers to himself as a dead dog. Who am I that you would ever show me kindness? Why would you ever show me mercy? You know who my father is. You just said it. You know who my grandfather is. You know that I'm a descendant of the previous king, I, I'm kind of an heir to the throne, which is your place now. Don't, wouldn't you want to take my life? Why are you offering me all these privileges? Why are you showing me this kindness? I'm not, I'm not worthy. Mephibosheth was crippled because at the age of five years old, when his dad and his granddad were in battle and died, word came back to his nurse, his nanny who was taking care of him, that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. And the nurse thought she had to protect the child to uh, hide the child. And as she was hurrying to get this five-year-old boy to safety, she dropped him. And it crippled his feet, made him lame. 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 9. The king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him 
and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. I love that picture. Kindness towards him. You, you know, the, the general approach to taking over a kingdom would be to wipe out everybody in leadership. The, these guys should have been dead men. They probably thought they were when they were being summoned by King David. Instead, David shows kindness. David gives Mephibosheth, the one who would be sitting on his throne if it wasn't for David stepping in, he, he gives him Ziba, all of Ziba's house, I think he's got 10 or 11 sons, to care for Mephibosheth and Mephibosheth's household. But Mephibosheth would eat at David's table. Look at verse 11. I want to end with this right here. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Isn't that beautiful? What he probably deserved was death. As a relative of Saul, as a potential heir to the throne, what he could offer the king was nothing. Couldn't even really work for the king. He was crippled, he was disabled. He was from a place that had nothing to boast about, nothing to offer. No worth, no value to the king. You know, we, we read a story like this and we're tempted to say, okay, we need to show mercy like David showed mercy. We need to look around at the people in society who have been forgotten or lost or maybe it seems like life has given them the short end of the stick. We need to find people who are marginalized and we need to act justly towards them and give mercy towards them and, and give them a seat at, their, at our table and treat them like our own and invite them into our family and our community. All those things are great. But you're not, you're not King David in the story. I'm not King David in the story. You know who we are? We're this guy. We have got nothing to offer the king. We've got no... We've, our hands are empty. We, we have got nothing to offer the king. But the king has invited us to sit at his table. Not based on our worth, not based on our value, not based on, on any of our accolades, not based on anything that we call ours, but simply based on who he is. And because of his love for his son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place. That's mercy. That's the his said mercy of God that God would show kindness towards us when we deserve absolutely none of it. Let's end right there. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for how you love us, in spite of us. God, we know what the Bible says, and we're going to be looking at it in the coming weeks, how what we really deserve is death. We have nothing to offer the king. But God, thank you that because you are merciful, you are kind, you are loving, you are faithful and patient towards us, you sent your only son to die in our place, to take the punishment, to take what justice rightly, rightly sent. And thank you that you offer us mercy through the death of your son. God, I thank you for who you are today.
for your love. Help us to be people of mercy. Help us to show mercy as we have been shown mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.